All right, everybody. We're just getting older. Kind of, kind of a small crew today, right? Yeah. A lot of, uh, a lot of folks have gone for very good thing the pastor's wife showed up, or we have. <laughs> No, so uh, we're going to talk about discipleship today, and discipleship at the table, and how it's um, distinct, and what constitutes discipleship, how we think about that, what that looks like. Hi, Spencer. Hey. I didn't realize that everybody was even in there. Yeah. But let's pray as we uh, get started. Lord, we love you, and thank you for this beautiful day morning that's pregnant with your presence. So God, as we talk about discipleship and as we prepare our hearts to worship, would you make your home among us? Would your spirit blow where he wants to? And would you constitute us as your people, as your body? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alright. Hey, what are some of the things that you I mean, everybody in here has been a Christian for at least two weeks. Looking at you, Spencer. <laughs> Give or take. Give or take, I know. No, what are some of the things that you associate with discipleship? Either words, activities, experiences you've had. What are some of the things you associate? Some kind of introductory class. Classes. Yeah, class. Like a table one on one class. Table one on one. What else? In, introductory, I think, is a good uh, modifier that he intro uh, class said there too. Right? Discipleship is like, okay, here's the basics of Christianity. I'd say spiritual disciplines. Okay, good. Spiritual disciplines. Can you name a couple of those? Uh, prayer, Bible. Yeah, because those things are. Probably, yeah, Bible reading, uh, yeah, fasting, yeah, great. Accountability groups. Oh, <laughs> yes, accountability, good. Book studies. Yeah, books. We can't get away. Good. Yeah, we can retreat there. <laughs> Retreats. No. Yeah. I would put up here um, uh, mentors. I would put up um, Bible memorization, which is a little different than just reading it. I mean, if you're going to get really serious, you're going to memorize it. Uh, I would put up here um, service, which could go under spiritual disciplines as well, right? Some kind of, uh, oh, and um, evangelism. Yes. Speaking of evangelism, Sean, if you were to die tonight. Good morning. Good morning, Sean. So these are the things we associate with discipleship. Uh, and as we think about as we think about discipleship at the table, some of us have, have been in DNA groups, some of us have gone through DNA groups. I'm gonna just name some of the broad sort of the landscape that we find ourselves in, like you named here, and then I'm going to describe how DNA groups fit into that landscape and are also are distinguished from it. So there's three main sort of ways that I've experienced that are reflected by these words up here. Three main ways that I've been discipled in my life. The first is sort of like a, uh, like a theological education. Right? This is um, the classes, the studies, the Bible memorization. Um, and it has to do with correct... 
little theologian back there. <laughs> it has to do with uh, like correct belief, correct understandings, correct, right? Like doctrine, dogma, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> I was talking to an uh, area pastor. I can't say the word area without thinking like those memes like area man, you know, loses his mind and it's a picture of like... Area man. <laughs> Florida man. Florida man. <laughs> Florida man. Um, uh, I, this is the tradition I came up in, which is basically like you, you need to know the right things in order to be the right Christian. This is kind of this is the seminary I went to. This is when I first came to faith. This is how I was discipled. Like you need this intro class to know all the right stuff. I was talking a few months ago with this area man. Uh, we were talking about the Enneagram. And I was sharing the moment that I realized uh, my number. I was describing this experience of, I was, I was in that office with Ben and Deb. And Deb, you read a story about, was it Dan Riso? Was it that guy? Yeah, Dan Riso discovered he was an Enneagram 4. And he, Enneagram 4s um, think that they're particularly flawed, particularly bad. Right? So there's nobody as wrong or bad as me. And Dan Riso had this moment, this is the way I remember it, Deb, that he was like in the middle of the night walking down the street in a rainstorm, which is a total fourth thing to do. Right? <laughs> super, super drama. Down the middle of the road. Down the middle of the road. <laughs> right. And, uh, and you know, as the clock struck 12 or whatever, right, he like, shook his fist in the sky and said, there's not a damn thing wrong with me. Right? And the way that he told the story was, this is a freeing thought for a four, because fours feel damned. Like, right? So I'm sharing this, and this Christian pastor across the table was like, that's not right. There is a damn thing wrong with you. In fact, there's nothing good in you. <laughs> you are thoroughly and 100% uh, depraved, <laughs> right? Um, and and the, the conversation among like five of us turned from like just sharing sort of these stories of breakthrough to now we're arguing about doctrine, and you're t you're in doing so you're invalidating my story. So um, I just ignored it and brushed it off and kept moving. No, I let him have it. <laughs> uh, I let him have it. I unloaded sort of, um, I unloaded 85% of my Masters of Divinity on him. It was like a B, B minus. Yeah, it was a, a B minus diatribe. Um, and it did B minus results. He was not convinced. Um, but in this, in this tradition where the theology is what matters, right? Here, here's how discipleship works. This is how it was explained to me. You need to understand how undeserving of anything you are. The road to transformation is directly through your wretchedness. So the more that you can understand and get in touch with how you can't earn mercy or grace... And dwell on that as much as possible. And then, from that place of like wretchedness, depravity, look upon the sacrifice of Jesus for taking your punishment. Like, he gets the wrath you deserve. And you can only appreciate the cross through your own sense of self-abasement. And from that place, looking on the cross... Here's how discipleship works. You will be so grateful that you aren't being crucified for your sins. That out of that gratitude that God took the punishment you deserve, you will joyfully obey the commands of the Lord. That's how discipleship works. Has anybody heard this before? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, it's not really how we do it here. But that's one of the models... <laughs> For how discipleship works. Uh, the other one, uh, and I just put that as theological education because it's really focused on cognitive understanding of about 17 different theological minutiae bits. 
The second one would be like a moral, moralistic formation. A moralistic formation is sort of, there's rules and norms, codes of conduct, do's and don'ts, right? A list of things. Um, this is kind of, uh, if this is about beliefs, this is about behaviors. Okay, so then discipleship is about eliminating certain behaviors from your life, right? If it's men, it's usually sexual issues. If it's women, it's usually body issues. <laughs> like, to be very caricatured about it, right? And so then we have things like accountability groups, right? Where we're talking about how, how are your behaviors doing? We check in and we talk about behaviors. Uh, we typically are really serious. We take like, we're serious about impropriety and sin. Uh, I mean, not that theological, theological realm is but this is, we're really focused on behaviors and stuff. Uh, and this also has uh, a positive sort of, not, not just a attacking sin, but also a positive sort of doing good works. So there's activistic kind of, we're going to do, we're going to do free car washes this weekend. In fact, we're going to Wash people's cars for free. You're going to know that Sean, this is right out of the Steve Children playbook. We're going to wash cars for free and give people a dollar as we wash their cars. We're going to show up at the gas station and wash toilets. Just, just sort of this activistic kind of, we're going, to, we're going to kill people with the love of Jesus. We're going to slay them in the mercy of God. And then the third, I would say, that I have less experience with, but I've seen it happen, is sort of this... Uh, emotional education formation, elation. <laughs> so this this discipleship is about seeking mountaintop experiences through worship services, through those weekend retreats, right? So there's this sense of discipleship goes from being this regular thing that I do to these little punctiliar kind of immersions where I get sort of injected with some kind of, you know, experiential elation to sort of take my take my walk to another level. You guys recognize these in your own life? Journeying through them? Mm -hmm. Anything you would comment on or add about just sort of the landscape that we find ourselves in? It can be personal or it could be just in general. Yeah, for me, I just to share personally, like the failure of the emotional elation strategy was what kind of led me into, I mean, what what ended up becoming this church plan. You know. So say more about the failure of the elation strategy. So I I was a worship pastor at a charismatic church, and sort of you know my job was to. To bring the emotion. Right. <laughs> so and my job was to engineer. And it, we wouldn't say it this way. And we tried to resist this temptation. But it, it came back to this a lot. Of engineering a kind of experience that would lift people up into some kind of emotional, you know, experience that was supposed to transform them. You know? Um, and it just, like, it just didn't transform anybody. <laughs> like, um, like, there were, there was transformation happening. I don't, I don't want to say that, you know. There was transformation happening, but it wasn't associated for me. The people who were most exuberantly involved in this experience that we were creating were not necessarily, almost never were they, the ones that I saw growing in faith, hope, and love. Their character was growing. They were learning to love other people well. Um, there was no association between the two. And so it was pretty discouraging for me. But yeah. Because that, that was pretty good at creating those experiences. <laughs> so the people that were most responsive to the experiences you wanted to create yeah. didn't correlate to a life full of Christ. No, 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 it didn't correlate. And I'm looking back on it, I think there was a there was a reason they were attracted to those experiences, right? There was a, there was a sense of validation for them, um, but they weren't getting in other areas of their life. But. So you're 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 commenting on something that's important for our church, and I want to name it, which is. The veracity of our discipleship processes, like whether or not they are faithful, we can actually draw a line from the character and competencies of the people who are involved in that to Jesus and say, are we becoming more like Jesus, right? 
So, mm-hmm. so the way we think about discipleship is becoming more like Jesus. Yeah. Like Jesus is the model, the pattern, and the way. And so discipleship then is intentionally enrolling ourselves in the training of becoming more like Jesus. Now, there, there is an escape hatch, though, from this, right? So if, if we do tons of theological education and I'm still a jerk, or if we do this emotional relation stuff and it doesn't work, like the theological escape hatch is, well, we're all sinners. Nobody's perfect, right? So like, of, co- of course you're not going to become more like Jesus because that's the, that's the whole part of the center of the truth, which is, have you forgotten how bad you really are? <laughs> right. Let's get back to how bad you are. Yeah. Even though you've been in our discipleship processes for twenty years. Right. And now you now you're at a place where you can appreciate Jesus again. Yeah, totally. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so we're off the hook. Like we're, we're off, off the, the hook. hook. When when we don't actually cultivate virtue through those strategies, we're off the hook. Because it wasn't about cultivating virtue. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's good. Yeah. Any other, like, reflections or comments? I was just reflecting on, like, I found myself in all three of those, but how I think within the church I also recognize, like, stages of life that seem like they really yeah. predominate. Mm-hmm. So, like, probably as, like, a high school, and I was in Christian high school, like, the emotional relation was, like, so much the focus, like, just these kids up, you know, yeah, yeah. camp and all those. But then, like, in college, it was very much, like, theological education and like having arguments and figuring out like, the exact yeah. details of what you think. But then I was thinking, like I didn't grow up in the church as a child, but that's probably like the approach with children that we really take. Like you need to share your toys and you need yes. to like not be mean to your brother and sister because like it's hard to be like, we're going to talk about, I, you said this at Easter, like how do we explain the resurrection to Michael? Like he doesn't know what death and resurrection, any of this stuff is. So it's like easy to just be like, okay, how can we take this moral idea and like teach that to our yeah. child? Yeah. So, um, but yeah, definitely like seeing all of those in my life, yeah. and like the good and the bad, and, like, yeah. and, like, I'm still trying to figure out like, sure. how those pieces fit together. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> that was good. I think too. I came from more like a uh, you know right doctrine equals right practice, or like from having the right doctrine is going to flow the way that you should live automatically, kind of thing. And so for me, it felt like this never-ending struggle to continually study so I could understand more and more so I could be the best Christian I could possibly be until someday. Uh, I think I heard like a Shane Claiborne sermon or something like that. He basically just said, like, there's got to be more than just making sure you know the right stuff. And that just that line just clicked with me. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I stopped feeling this pressure to just understand the, the most in-depth theology I could possibly find and try to understand what the heck the new perspective on Paul is in this, right? That would kind of equate to like, well, if I understand this, it's going to, it's going to form my practice and I will be living the way I'm supposed to be. Yeah. You know, and so, sure. So, like, once I was freed from that kind of motive, I didn't have to worry about that much. And then, thinking about what I guess really matters. Which is the new perspective on Paul, which we're talking about. <laughs> no, so, um... Hey, Matt. I was going to say something, yeah. too. I felt, I feel like, as I'm looking at each one of those, like, the pressure that is surrounded yes. with each one. Yes. And, like, in my life where I found, like, being involved in each one, the pressure that you have, like, the theological education, like, there's pressure, like learn and figure out what is the right thing and then moralistic formation whether you're on one side of it or the other side like yes. um, meeting and discipling women like in college and feeling like I had to each time I would meet with them I feel like I have to like figure out how can I help them get to a better place yes. you know yes. or yes. personally like what I need to do and then mm-hmm. retreats like if you don't get to that like mountaintop experience and there's a lot of pressure yeah. with that you know like who wouldn't get there totally. well that's really bad you know so just kind of yeah totally like a lot of pressure and all of it yeah mm-hmm. yeah so just a few things i keep hearing and i want to point um out are important something that's important then is for you or one of either you or i to bring an eraser <laughs> for this morning because <laughs> um, i keep forgetting to bring one and i've got several at home 
the first is, Andrea, what you're talking about, that the, the emphasis on knowledge, the emphasis on uh, the heart, and the emphasis on behavior are, are part of stages of development, right? They're part of stages of development. So, um, so you teach children not to play in the street before they realize why they desire to stay alive. Right? Like, there's just a no. You can't play in the street. And then later it's a, well, you, you know, you value your life. This is one of the boundaries around value, valuing your life. You don't play in front of oncoming 40-mile-per-hour delivery trucks. Right? So it's part of stage of development. And there's, there's similar stages of development for in the Christian faith, too. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is... If we focus on these things as an end to themselves, there is a lot of pressure. So there's this, um, like Carmen, you you described it as like, and Scott, you described this too as like, I've got to I've got to fill in the blank, get these women to get a, in a better place, or I'm putting on this, re- we're, we're planning a church retreat in November for the table. It's got to be amazing, right? It's got to be this mountaintop experience. We have to produce this thing for people or else, A, they won't come back, and B, they'll be mad at probably Ben because it was his fault. So, like, there's all this stuff. Right. I mean, I'm just saying that. <laughs> uh, so, there's, so there's all this anxiety and pressure, then, uh, that we feel to make discipleship happen and to produce results, to get sort of the results. We want. Um, yeah, any other thoughts before kind of lay out a few things? I'll just say that, that that's the reason that's the reason the kids' confirmation class is different than what this is. Uh, we're not just so, so for the for the, the you know uh, it was our kind of our tweens. <laughs> Um, when they went through kind of preparing for confirmation, it was a lot about learning about the basics of the Christian faith. So it was doctrine, it was things like that. You know, we went through the catechism. You know, what is it? You know, what do we talk about? We say he's rose from the dead. What do we? You know, what does it mean that we affirm the Trinity? And a lot of that kind of thing. That I think that's important for them to wrestle with. You know, at this stage, and so a lot of their questions had to do with those things as well. Where they were just like gaining an understanding, you know, and um, it felt very appropriate to yep. kind of lead the class in that way because of their, the stage of their life and also the stage of their faith. Yep, yep. And so if I could take those three things and just break them out into, now some, uh, some of you have been through teenagers, and so this is going to be a little familiar. Some of us are getting introduced to them, and so I don't want to skip over things too quickly. Yeah. But um, there are these streams, right, the theological education, like the words of Jesus, are really important. Like information, doctrine, dogma. This isn't something that's unimportant, right? Then there's the uh, moralistic or the uh, activistic kind of stream as well, where what we're doing, our behavior, uh, we're not we're not talking about this in a um, dualistic way. So just because we talk about the insufficiency of moralistic sort of focusing on behavior to actually bring transformation, it doesn't mean that behavior is wrong. Like good behavior is actually undesirable. That's not what we're trying to say. Mm-hmm. Right? And then there's this sense of like, I think the emotional elation stream intuits this, but they reduce sort of our desires into just emotions. But like there's a seat of desire, like what we want that, that moves and motivates us from, you know, like scripture talks about our guts or our, our kidneys, right? So there's this other aspect, too, that seems to be important, um, our wants. And so what we want to do at the table is we want to, we want to give ourselves over to a process that seeks not to sort of isolate these things and hope that if we get our words right, then we'll, if, if you really understand how bad you are and how good the cross is, then you will obey or if we get your desires amped up and send you out either with a elated state of joy or with like tons of willpower, like supercharged willpower, then you'll just, you know, begin to obey. But rather we want to uh, just notice what Jesus does is he, he helps people integrate these three things so that they know and do and desire in alignment with the kingdom of God. 
Um, so a few a few assumptions we make. I'm just going to read these uh, axioms for us that help us orient in the perspective that Jesus has when he is discipling people, right? So the pressure thing is huge, especially if you're a pastor at a church and you want to disciple people and it's kind of all up to you and you're the professional Christian in the room, so get it done. You know what I mean? Like, make it happen. So here's, uh, we have seven theological axioms that are basically like the ways that Jesus saw the world. The ways that Jesus interpreted and inhabited his world that we think are helpful for us as we reimagine what does it look like to become more like Jesus here. The first is that God is always present in the world. So discipleship isn't something we necessarily have to make happen, or we don't want to presume that discipleship isn't happening until we start a group. But discipleship is like the prod, like it's the activity and presence of God in each of our lives. To bring about a greater conformity of Christ. Right? And the God who's always present at work is just like Jesus. So the methods or the ways that God is at work in our life uh, isn't, he's not uh, leveraging our shame to help us behave better. Some of the worst of accountability groups do that. Right? He's not leveraging our shame. He's not holding us over the flames of hell to teach us how to be kind. Right, uh, and that God is who is always present in that work is just like Jesus is. Uh, is meeting us right where we really are. That's the third thing. So there's no better place to start responding to God's grace than where you really are. Okay, not where you should be or where you used to be. You don't have to get back to something or get to something in order to meet God really today. Yeah? Number four, God cares about all of it more than we do. So the pressure's off of us. Like, not just the, not just the professionals, but the laity. All of us, the pressure's off. God's at work. We join in and participate in that. Okay? Number five, what God's going to do through us, the kind of, the kind of dad I want to become, the kind of mom I want to become, the kind of neighbor I want to be, what God wants to do through us, He's also going to do in us. So, so, then, so then our, our Christ-likeness isn't something we produce, it's not a technique, it's not, it's not 12 principles we apply, but rather it's about becoming a vessel for the Holy Spirit, for the dwelling place of God, and then out of that dwelling place, God inhabits our relationships. Our conscience, right? Number six, the goal of what we're doing in discipleship isn't about getting smarter. It's not about becoming a theological wizard. And it's also not about becoming perfect, eradicating every sin from our life. But rather, the goal of our discipleship is about becoming one with God. Communion. Divine union. It's inherently relational. It's relation-oriented. Rather than being right, we're doing right. It's about being righteous, connected, right? And then, um, and so then that divine union is, is one of love. And so then we learn love. We learn the goal of our entire discipline process. Not, not by um, filling in blanks or taking notes from, the pul- from what's said in the pulpit. Right? But by embodied participation, we learn in our actual lives what it is. Okay? Now, these are sort of the ways that we see Jesus operate, and they become then for us the kind of the foundation or ground zero for anything we do in discipleship. Any, any questions or thoughts about those things? I know I went through them pretty quickly, but maybe questions or comments that are stirring for you as I say them. Having gone through the genetic group just at least one time and also been in various deception things in the past, like the words and works are always part of the equation, but, every, but going down into the wants is a completely new place for me 
not even just like anything. It's already hard for me to know what my wants were. I mean, you mentioned Enneagram that not somehow that we do or talk about all the time, but as a tool to kind of figure that out. For me, once I figured out my number, it was like I'm not in touch with what I want, mm-hmm. and so that process got me in touch yes. with what I want. Yes. And led to some pretty dramatic change in my life recently. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you know, and so that was kind of a cool thing. So now I'm trying to go through this like kind of cyclical pattern where I can figure out, okay, how does that? And I've kind of gotten in touch with what I want. How does that actually affect the way I might behave? But not necessarily as bad as it in and of itself, like you had mentioned. But at least if I'm in touch with what I can really want, I can now be honest with God about what I really want and not feel like what I want is bad, so I don't need to, hmm. you know, now I can actually, in prayer, be honest, like, this is what I want, Yeah. you know, I hope that's okay, you know, or yeah. I'm not be afraid to, you know, say that kind of stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know? yeah, good. As you were saying those axioms, Matt, uh, it struck me that I think part of one way this is one way of describing how discipleship works here is that we become the kind of people who believe those things. Like oftentimes, the, the kairoses I have, the little moments where I'm like, oh, what's, what's going on there? Or, you know, conflicts or challenges or sins, even. Like a lot of those are rooted in the fact that I don't fully believe those things yet, that God's always present at work that, you know, he cares a lot more than I do, right? There, there are ways of me saying, actually, I care about more than God, and so therefore I have to blank, right? But God's really not present at work here, so I need to get to work here. You know what I mean? So part of the discipleship process is learning to just rest in those, those axioms, to say, like, okay, this is, this, is, this is what's real. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one way of describing it, I think. It's mm-hmm. like learning how to believe those things, really. Like our, learning our bodies... Not just affirming them with our minds, but like learning to neck, recognize and notice places where we actually don't. Our bodies are telling us that you don't believe this yet, yeah. and that and that's okay. But like, here's a revelation. Here, here's where you meet God is in this space now that you're aware of. So, yeah. So it's not enough to just assent to the accident, but it's it's actually be, so the way I describe it is like. Um, they're meant to be lenses, like my glasses. They're meant to be um, the way we see the world. And they give us access to different things, right? So like right now, I have decent vision. I can tell who everybody is in the room. But there's certain things I don't have access to because the lenses on my eyes aren't clear, right? So lenses are meant to, to help bring clarity and give us access to things. They're, not meant, they're meant to get out of the way, actually. So like... A good part about my glasses is, and why I clean them a lot is, I don't want to actually see the lens. I want to see through the lens. Right? What we typically do with, like, those accents I mentioned, or maybe this tool, is we want to just, like, in Christian discipleship, we want to, like, put the accents out here and, and talk about them. Yeah. And, like... Study them. Study them, and then, like, be able to regurgitate them, and then, like always have a defense ready to convince other people of them, you know, and like, and, and what we do is we miss the purpose of what they actually are for. Right? They're not, we're not, we're not trying to, so we're not, so the lenses, they're not for looking at, they're for looking through. And so then our discipleship is, like when you say believe them, what you mean is just put on the glasses. Yeah, yeah. put on the glasses. Right. Yeah. Yeah, tr- trusting when I put on my glasses, I trust, I trust what I'm seeing to give me a representation of what's real. Okay? I'm trusting. Yeah. Which is what we mean primarily when we say belief. Yeah. Trust. Yeah, and then Scott described, uh, so, so can I tell a little bit of the story about how you guys found our church? Yeah. Scott? So Scott and Alicia were living in California, and they were thinking about moving back here because Scott's family's here. And one of Scott's friends in California was a buddy of mine in seminary. And so Scott was looking for an Anglican church, which he's one of the few people that found us because we're an Anglican church. 
and was talking to a buddy in North Carolina, and he said, look at this website, and he found our church on this website, and then he made a connection that his buddy in California knew us. So he's talking to his buddy, he was like, hey, I'm really excited, his name's John, I'm really excited about checking out the table, they're Anglican, and we're really looking forward to like Anglican worship. And John was like, yeah, well, I know he's Anglican, but he's really into discipleship, so I know that's really what he cares about. And Scott, what was your reaction to that? Um, I think I was kind of like, um, okay. <laughs> well, well, when you when you to, when you told me the story in the past, you were like, ugh, yeah, like I mean, discipleship, like right. As like, there's just no depth to that. It's such a shallow meaning. Right, like I don't care about that. I guess we'll tolerate discipleship yeah, exactly. if we get the Anglican thing, right? right exactly. Like that was like basically your posture, right? Um, and so uh, one of the things that you described is like. And one of the things that we see Jesus doing is that like, he actually gets below the waterline of what people are thinking and what people are doing. Right? So people try to rope him into these arguments about, hey, what do you think about this woman who had seven husbands? Or what do you think about this coin? You know, what do you think about, should we, should we heal on the Sabbath or not? Or like, uh, let's talk about these behaviors and let's... And Jesus is always getting down to the heart of things of people. And so, uh, we just, uh, we want to we do what Jesus did. <laughs> I think he's pretty smart when it comes to discipleship. And what you're describing is, like, getting in touch with what's driving me, what's motivating me. What do I want? What do I desire? Right? And we don't do that, we don't do that in a meta thing. Like, I don't, sit and, I don't, I don't tell you, like, what do I want with my life? This isn't like a... Um, a big picture abstract thing but it's like last night with my son I'm putting him to bed and um, and he goes dad so are Adam and Eve real <laughs> and he's like 40 minutes past bedtime and I'm just trying to get him to bed and so I'm like and I said, what do you mean? He said, well, did they actually live in an actual garden? I was like, well, <laughs> Deacon, this is hard for a nine-year-old to understand. And this is just, this is, I'm not speaking for the table, I'm speaking for Matt. I just said, that, uh, Adam and Eve can be real even if they aren't historically true. Which just threw off all <laughs> kinds of sirens and a nine-year-old literalist. Black and white mind, right? I'm like, get out of bed. I'm gonna pour myself a bourbon. Uh, no. So anyway, we we started talking about this, and I said, well, some Christians believe that they're historically true, and some Christians believe they're not. And he goes, and I said, and we don't. I said we believe that Adam and Eve uh, are are true in the sense that they reveal something essential about humanity that. And I gave some more theology around that. And he goes, so the Christians that believe they're historically true, are they, are they Christians like Donald Trump? He didn't want to go to bed. He knows how to keep that. So, uh, so, so my little boy, um, he, he has this desire, he's got this really fierce desire to know what's right. I see it in him all the time. If he ever does anything wrong, you try to correct him, he's immediately defensive and finds somebody to blame or finds an excuse or tries to justify it. Like he's fiercely, he's fiercely terrified of being wrong. So, um, I've noticed that what he wants is to be right. Yeah? And the way he tries to get that is through, like, just give me the right things to know. And he wants to know the right things to do. He wants to know your expectations. You're playing a game. Give me all the rules. Don't break them. Like that kind of thing. Right? Um, and something I'm learning is, like, I can give my son all the, all the right stuff to know about Adam and Eve and Donald Trump and whatever else. Uh, but really what he wants to know is that he's good. That he's good. 
I'm not a, and that he's accepted. That he's good. So I just started speaking that over him. Because we've had this, we've had these kinds of conversations about 10,000 times. Right? Like it's been, I mean, it happens every night when at that time. And uh, he just starts crying. He just started weeping, you guys. It was, it was really precious. He just started crying, and he just said, um, he said to me at one point, he said, Daddy, why, um, why did Jesus have to be perfect? Why couldn't Jesus have sinned like we are so he can know what it's like? And he is like desperately wanting like, to be able to relate to Jesus in his, like, feeling his badness and knowing that Jesus understands what that like. You know, just this precious, precious moment, right? So there's this... I just share that story because it happened last night and I was weeping too. But Because uh, what's driving my son's questions isn't like he's going to lose his faith if he doesn't understand what Adam and Eve are about. No, he desperately wants to know that he's, he's got a good heart. He's got a good heart. And that, and that as his dad, I love him. And I'm not, I'm not demanding perfection from him. You don't, have to, you don't have to figure everything out. You're released from knowing all the right answers. Right? Just in that moment, right? That's an example of what we're talking about. Which, uh, I, I haven't experienced that very much. So, um... Let me just share, share a few more things and then we can have a conversation if we need to about this. So what do we do if God's always present at work? And if he cares more about it than we do? And if he's just like Jesus and he's going to meet us where we really are? Like what do we do? Well, we just begin to pay attention to our lives. Right? So we have some practices that we, that we use. Um, and Ben just mentioned this. We, we detect... Like Kairos moments, where God's at work. So last night, my son's too young to own, I have this fear of being bad. But as his dad, I can pay attention to his life and notice this is his major anxiety in his life. I can notice this is a Kairos moment and notice how to minister. So we detect, like, Kairos moments, right? Who, who, can, who can tell us how do we do that? Those of you who've been in teenagers, what do we do to detect our response? How do we know if we're having one? For me, it's just trying to pay attention when I have some kind of stronger emotion. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's just part for me to do. Yeah. So it was more so, I think that was a defining moment was when I feel a certain kind of emotion when something happens or somebody says something at work or that all of a sudden stirs up a feeling in there. Yeah. It was like, okay, what is the feeling? Sure. You know, and then let somebody else ask some questions about it rather than just try to explain away that you understand everything about what's going on. Great. Great. So for some, for some of us, it's paying attention to strong emotion. Noticing it. Yeah. What else? I think for me, I mean, it's related to what he said, but uh, like part of my thing is realizing that not everybody reacts the exact same way that I do. Like there's not a black and white, this is the way you should react in a situation. And then like giving my, myself permission to say, I wonder why I react that way. Yeah. Instead of just looking at everybody else that reacts differently, like these people are all crazy. <laughs> <laughs> So just noticing the differences between how you respond to stimuli or situations and others do. Mm-hmm. And just presuming that maybe the perception of that difference may be a place God wants to meet you. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I, uh, for me, it's like things that happen over and over and over. Patterns, habits, rhythms, things that I'm, like this thing with Deacon, like I'm noticing over and over and over. Anytime I try to correct him, like, just, just offensiveness, right? It's justification, it's rationalization, it's blaming. Yeah. Uh, but for me, in my own life, it's like uh, I notice persistent like things about sleep or anxiety or things like that. Sometimes it's when something stops working, 
your life stops working the way it used to. That can be a sign of a car. Yeah. You know, like, oh, you know, this used to be the way that, you know, my wife and I talk and now, like, we can't talk that way anymore. We both get upset when we try to do this until it's going on here, you know. Yeah. So something stops working. Yeah. I say too, like, that it isn't always a negative, mm-hmm. that it can be a positive thing too. Like, I recognize uh, when I went home uh, to Minnesota to visit family, um, I didn't respond this way. I usually sit with my mom when she does her usual pattern, you know, and that, like, was really encouraging and it was a positive thing. Yeah. Um, so it isn't always a negative. Um, yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. Your life starts working in a new way. Yeah. Or even like a vision of what I'd like to become. Like yeah. seeing seeing um, somebody in the way that they are mm-hmm. and thinking, wow, I really yes. I really resonate with that. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think sometimes this sounds like like homework almost, like you have to figure out how to notice these things and pay attention. But I think the biggest takeaway I would say is like, whatever you notice is what God wants you to notice. So it's not like you have to like take a legal pad around with you throughout the week and jot down your power houses. Right. So like we all notice different things. We listen to ways that we often do. But I may notice something totally different, like on the drive home from from church. Yeah. And then to jump on that, um, I think also the people in our life speak back to us. Like my husband has done more for <laughs> certain things in my life to like really be like, oh, yes. I never even thought about that. Like, like, yeah, this is a pattern. Like, I never noticed this pattern in my life until totally. he's like, hey, by the way, is this like exactly what you're doing? Totally. Yep. Yep. So the key important here is that God, God only has access to our perceptions. Like, what else would he have access? So there's, there's work happening that you can't perceive. And you're not responsible for that. Meaning, there's, there's no volitional will that you, you're having. There's no intentional participation in that. Because it's happening imperceptibly. Right? But what you can perceive actually then engages your agency. Yeah. Right? So, Jesus praying for Peter, James, and John before he called them to be disciples, they weren't responsible for that. They had nothing to do with that. That was Jesus' will and agency, right? When Jesus says, hey, drop your hands and follow me, they had a choice. They could perceive his voice. He asked them to do something. They could go back to fishing, right? Or drop the nets and follow him. So we just start with what we can perceive. As, As... a place to discern, uh, actually as a place to, the second practice would be dig, as a place to say, God, what are you doing here? If you're at work, what's going on? Right? Why do I, why do I have anxiety about going to teach every day? Oh, I don't like this. <laughs> but, right? I, I told myself I am a teacher, but if I'm honest, I don't like this. Yeah. God, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. Right? What are you doing? Yeah, I mean, and then the pattern of 12 interviews and no offers. Right. So, <laughs> so not only do I not like this, but other people don't like me doing this. <laughs> Nobody likes me teaching. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I'm just using this because you brought it up earlier, Scott. But like, yeah, so we dig a bit. And what we do is we dig to get down to like, what's going on? Like under the surface here, why is my son so defensive when I correct him? God, let me know his heart. Like honestly, like, dealing with the heart rather than just dealing with externals and, and abstractions. Yeah. With thoughts and externals. Yeah. Uh- this thought just came to me, like, you don't, you don't need to know why the bush is on fire ahead of time. Like, your only responsibility at this point is just to say, oh, there's a bush on fire over there. I want, let me go, I want to go check it out. You know? Like, you don't need to know the end from the beginning. I've, I've sometimes seen people, like, engage in this process feeling like, oh, I need to know why I'm anxious at work. You know, before I can start talking about it. But, like, there's a freedom in this that, like, God's at work. 
And he leads us into this revelation as we just pay attention and just honest about like, I don't know, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why this bush is on fire. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, we, we train the practice of digging and we call it compassionate curiosity. So at story nights, this is how we listen to stories. We, we hear people share their stories and we practice asking compassionate, curious questions. We do this because uh, Jesus, this is how he operated. When he encountered people, he, um, he either held before them something that God was doing, or he would be compassionately curious with people so that they would bring forth what God was doing. Uh, and we want to create those relational spaces, right? We think they're actual spaces of, of encounter, of, of love, of being present with people in grace and truth. Uh, and so we learn how to ask questions, being present with people, not as an investigator or an interrogator, right? Uh, but simply as a friend, someone who wants to stand alongside you and help you lay hold of what God has for you. We discern. You'll notice not only are all these words in English, but they also are letter D. Uh, we discern kind of uh, we say discern the kingdom. Right? So what's what's the what's the bad news at work here? Or what's the good What's the gospel thing at work here, right? What's the bad, the bad news or the, or the good thing at work here, right? So like Deb, with like your kairos that you had in Minnesota, where you're not responding to your mom the same way, right? You're noticing this break in this pattern. I'm guessing you said it was positive, so it used to be something that would be different if Jesus were Lord, <laughs> and now it's something more like if Jesus were Lord, right? So we we say, God, what 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 are you what are you doing here? What's this, what's this kingdom of God that's, that's beginning to take root in my life? And how do I, how do I name that and celebrate that and lay hold of that? Right? Yeah, so we discern like what's going on in the kingdom. So we declare good news to it. We learn how to proclaim the gospel to each other. And the gospel isn't just you're awful lucky because Jesus took the bullet for you. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a particular uh, theory of how the atonement works. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus is king. And he's untruthing all the lies that hold humanity hostage. And that's often a big part of the discern process is like what, what Matt means by bad news is lies. Lies that we believe that we didn't know we believe. Oh, like that's the reason I'm that's the reason this is coming up for me or, or whatever. Yeah. Like this lie is running my life and I didn't even know. Because we proclaim good news to those lies. Yeah. And lies that I believe about myself, yeah. about others, about God. God, about this situation. Yeah, yeah. And we, we, we spend a lot of time in our DNA groups unpacking this, but it has to do with, I mean, we see the, the lies kind of grab Eve in the garden, right? But with the fruit, the lies hold Israel hostage. Jesus confronts those lies in the wilderness through the temptation of bread and the temple and to bow down. Then he defeats them in the cross. And then we see in the New Testament that... Um, Overcoming the world is living in in kingdom contrariness to those lies, right? Um, and so, really, it's pretty simple. Nothing, nothing is none of our pathologies or antipathies, none of the things that the stumbling blocks and the footholds and the problems we have, they may look different ways, right? So, one person's addiction may be another person's um, gluttony, maybe another person's lust, but What's going on is they're coming from very similar places. Very similar. They're just like all the antipathies and pathologies we seek to minimize are strategies of how to get needs met, desires met. They are. Very few of us go, how do I run my life? 
I know. I'm going to become an alcoholic. And there, there may be one or two people that do that. But even people that do that, they're seeking to minimize pain. Hurt. So uh, we declare good news. And then we do... Uh, we believe it. So we live as though it's true. We live in the bad good news. It's the embodied participation part. It's yeah. like I, I offer my body as a living sacrifice. And then we, yep, and then we debrief. So as, as we experiment with living as though the gospel's true, we check back in and say, hey, how's it going? Like, tell me what... Tell me what you're noticing. Are you failing? Are you succeeding? Is God, you have other kairos moments? Detecting other things God is doing? So I just lay out this process just to say, like, our entire structure for discipleship is that we need to become responsive people to the grace of God, and we have more grace than we can handle in our everyday lives. Right in the midst of our friendships, marriage, parenting, neighborhoods, like, that's the, that's the curriculum. That's the context for our formation in Jesus. And so let's just tend to it. Let's tend to it rather than come up with an amazing strategy to make something else happen. Thoughts or comments or questions about that? Or just reflections? I would just say, I would say to like, DNA groups are not the only place we learn how to do this. Like this is like this goal of becoming this this kind of community and these kind of people. It's kind of what drives everything we do. Like the reason Sunday morning is the way it is. The reason you know table groups and different things we try to cultivate. Like all of it is sort of organized. It's integrated toward this goal of saying like we're trying to become a community that can you know bear the gospel uh, together. So it's it's. It's all integrated. DNA group is a very specific form of like training to say, let's train you on how to recognize this in your everyday life. But it's integrated. Like the reason the reason we preach the way we do, for example, is because it's integrated with the kind of good news we're learning to proclaim to each other and to our kids and to our friends and to our neighbors. Like it's all it's all integrated, you know, into one thing that we're kind of doing together. Yeah, so that's common. We don't, we don't have time to get into it today, but the other thing I didn't want to say is like we, we do want to we, we do want to start some intentional DNA groups again this fall. Um, and so we don't know exactly what that's gonna look like yet, but just to say like probably be asking you guys if you have thoughts and what you what you think might work and what you want, you know, to do. Some of you have already expressed a desire to get into them. Yeah, but just want to throw that out there. We want to try to figure out what that's going to look like. Yeah. I was wondering if um, I heard this organ music. I felt this incredible amount of anxiety. Is that a kind of moment? Are you being serious? Because <laughs> <laughs> it might be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I know you're joking, but I read a tweet this morning, and there's a particular, I come out of a tradition of Christian, like a Christian tradition, early on, like, and that I've left behind, and I get, um, like, anger, anxiety, trigger, when I read or see this particular person in this tradition tweet, 
And it happens all the time. And I sort of just like, my job, like the way I handle it in the moment is to sort of just like eliminate it. <laughs> right? So just don't follow him on Twitter, don't read his tweets, etc. But this morning, like I'm preparing for this class, and I'm like, why, why is there so much anxiety here? And immediately, like three things fell into my head that I felt like were from the Lord. Um, so I know you're joking about the organ music, but like that's my organ music. Yes. yes. And and um, like this community of Christians was there when I when I um, left two major identifying communities in my life, my family and my theater community, and they sort of adopted me and welcomed me, and I found a family. And then like moving away from them the last ten years has been like feeling like I'm losing a family. And there's like. I, so part of part of my antipathy is that I don't feel like I belong anywhere. I don't feel like I actually have a people, right? Because I'm always I'm really noticing how I'm different than everybody and 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 excluded. And so like every time I see this person, it's like this re-triggering of this bad news that I don't have a family, I don't belong, I don't have a people, right? Now as I say that, like you guys. Some of you have, like, read the Bible. Like, does, does the story of God that culminates in Jesus have anything to say? Does God want me to know anything about who He is and who I am because of who He is and who we are because of who He is? That has to do with belonging and family and connection? Hell yes. Right? Now see, like, now, this has been a Kairos that's been going on for 10 years. And I feel like I got some great clarity today about it, right? So the reason it's happening isn't because I just need to get over myself or uh, I'm a bad person. No, it's happening. I'm, I'm detecting it because God's present at work in my life. He wants to bring healing into that place. Because he's just like Jesus. He's not taunting. <laughs> right? He's not throwing it on my face. Oh, he's saying, come on. I'll bring healing So that God becomes your spiritual guide in many ways. He becomes a gift to you. He becomes a gift. He's not, yeah, so like in Jesus, yeah. he is the meeting place with God. Yeah. Yeah. Apart from Jesus, he's my enemy. Yeah. So uh, a couple things about this fall. So we have geography issues. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> We've got people coming from all over the place. That's great. It's great. But um, a lot of this, this discipleship is like connecting relationally together. So we have to we have to ask questions. How do we do that? Is it is it just um, you know is it driving? Is it virtual like video online? Is it we need to talk about that. Two. We have people here. Um, Carmen, I'm thinking of you. Sharon, Ben, Deb. Uh, who've been through a lot of DNA groups, right? Um, in some ways, it's like, what does it look like then for you now to lead something? Or, like, is this, a, do you need to take a break from... So, so other discipleship curriculums are things like, well, you do 101, you do 201, you do 301, and then you've got it, you've got the binder, you know, you've got... Like, and then you can pull it and reference it, Right? Um, but like because the context is our life, the curriculum's always evergreen, right? So like, I really needed a DNA group this week. I probably still do to process this Kairos I had this week, right? And that's not because I'm I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I wrote this stuff. <laughs> like, so like I don't know if I'll ever not need a DNA group. I don't know. I don't know how else to live like tending to what God's doing, right? So there's that, and there's also like seasons. I'm like, is this a season for you? Is there something else God's calling you to rather than being in a DNA group and we want to bless that? Or is God calling you to lead a DNA group and we need to empower and equip you for that? Or is God calling you to be in a DNA group this year? Like those are the, I think the three options I can think of. And we want to discern based upon what God's doing in your life. 
What season are you in? Rather than Ben and I just to sort of sit down and decide and assign it. No, we trust that God's present in the work, like in the body. Right? So we need to have this conversation in the next couple months, and we will. And I have absolutely no idea what it looks like. I've, I've, well, I do have like, it could look like this, it could look like this, but there's nothing in me that's like, I really want it to look like that. It can look like whatever it needs to look like. Some of questions or thoughts about that, but. Yeah. All right. Um. Let me pray for us, and then we'll we'll head out into the land of coffee and carbs. Uh, Lord, uh, we thank you that you are good and that you're present among us. Thank you that you've given us your great grace, your, your incredible favor, and that it is so near to us. It's nearer to us than we are to ourselves. In fact, that you know us better than we know ourselves. God, help us, to, help us to meet you in that place. Help us to be, have the courage and the tenacity to lay hold of your kingdom at the center of our very being. And be with us now as we move into worship as well. Uh, help our kids to transition well into worship. May we hear good news as Andy preaches that today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.